Hi, and welcome back to the Wheeler Centre's Fifth Estate podcast. In this episode, we'll hear from the author and foreign correspondent Robert Fisk, as well as the Melbourne-based American politics academic Timothy Lynch. They join us live at the 2017 Melbourne Writers' Festival to discuss the collapse of American power in the Middle East with our host, Sally Warhaft. Our guests are Robert Fisk, who is a correspondent, of course, in the Middle East for more than four decades. For many of those at the Times of London and since 1989 uh, at The Independent. Robert's based in Beirut. Uh, He's reported on wars, including the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, the Iranian revolution, the Iran-Iraq war, and now, of course, the Syrian war. His books include Pity the Nation and The Great War for Civilization, and he's currently working on Night of Power, the story of the Arab world since 2005. Timothy Lynch is Director of the Graduate School of Humanities and Social Sciences and Associate Professor of American Politics at Melbourne University. His books include Turf War, The Clinton Administration and Northern Ireland After Bush. He's Editor-in-Chief of the two-volume Oxford Encyclopedia of American History and Diplomatic History and he's the convener, something I would love to attend, of the ten great books of... uh, uh, Melbourne, uh, what's it called? Ten Ten Great Great Books Books of Melbourne Masterclass. Masterclass. Uh, Please give him a very warm welcome. In this very warm room, I should add, Deacon Edge is rather cosy this afternoon. Very warm. Uh, Look, to begin with on our topic, I think we need to talk about the state of American power more Uh, broadly, and I'd like to hear from each of you how you would describe, uh, I'm going to start with him, uh, President Trump's foreign policy agenda or plan. (laughs) Timothy. Well, thank you, Sally. It's a delight to be here and an honour to share uh, this very hot couch with with Robert Fisk. (laughs) You'll you'll note we've established Middle Eastern temperatures in order to facilitate his... (laughs) We are good friends, by the way. You won't find any ability to... I always like in these settings to count how many minutes I or, or my panellists can go before we have to talk about Donald Trump. So, unfortunately, we haven't gone a minute, I don't think, without mentioning him. This is what I would say, uh, that in some ways, Donald Trump as a man and as a character soon exhausts interest. Uh, I mean, I'd, in some ways, that his vacuity, the fact he's never read anything that he, he survives on an, on an undiluted narcissism, that interest in that, to me, runs out pretty quickly. What's important, of course, about Donald Trump is why so many people are prepared to support him, even though many are suspicious that he has these character traits. So in terms of your question, Sally, when it comes to foreign policy, what I would try and do is take Trump out of it, which I will concede, ladies and gentlemen, is not straightforward, and ask you to consider that American foreign policy from Obama to Trump and from Bush to Obama and really from, I think you could go back from Truman all the way up to where we are now, represents far more continuity than it does change or rupture. But we live in a political context in which we expect every four or eight years a revolution in foreign policy and we invest huge faith and even huge hatred in the man and eventually woman that will be president and that's, that is usually misplaced. The, the, a change of leaders is the joy of fools. So I, I would ask us to consider that American foreign policy very slow to change uh, and that we should understand Trump within that tradition. Well, uh, in May, President Trump promised to bring peace to the Middle East and he said of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it's something that I think is frankly maybe not as difficult as people have thought over the years. Uh, <laughs> Robert, how is all this going? Look, you're an Australian audience, so I'm going to mince my words. I'm going to restrain myself when I speak about the American president. Uh, Donald Trump is insane. (laughs) He is crackers. He's a crackpot. He should be in an asylum. Uh, To discuss a foreign policy... In, with the word Trump attached to it is insanity. Uh, I am shocked that my own colleagues 
on the New York Times, famous for fake news now. They've been using fake news in the Middle East for the past 44 decades, but um, I am shocked that they actually talk about Trump's foreign policy. There is no such thing as an American foreign policy under Trump. And his outrageous display of biased, stupid, inane politics at the famous um, Riyadh um, conference in which he effectively lined up with the Sunni Muslims against the Shiite Muslims was a disgrace to any civilized um, country or regime. Um, I don't think it's possible to discuss a Trump foreign policy in any kind of serious way. There isn't one. And when I see some of my own colleagues saying, thank God the American military are running American foreign policy, I think it's time to put on my flak jacket again. Um, there is no such thing. I used to think in my stupidity of youth that America would eventually decline with some massive um, incandescent war. I never realized it would actually decline as an empire uh, in this Monty Python, uh, Life of Brian way. Um, I cannot conceive of any other world leader, including the dearly beloved uh, leader of North Korea, actually um, tweeting the presidential um, prestige away in the way that Trump is doing. It is a disgrace to foreign policy in the civilized world, a phrase that the Americans like to use, and it is an infinite tragedy for the United States which could be capable of such great things in the world and which is throwing away its prestige and its power with this stupid, insane man. And I'm well, sorry I'm mincing my words. Yeah, I, I did, uh, no, you can, uh, no, you, don't, you don't, you hang on to that, Robert. <laughs> I, I'll leave you with your bomber pilot's mic. I'm yeah, trying Robert to do the refused, Frank Sinatra He bit refused here. to wear one because he calls them bomber pilot mics. So he's, if you're wondering. One of the problems we have with political discourse in the current moment is that we tend to dwell too much on this, I, I hate Trump more than you vibe. Um, I, 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 I know, <laughs> I, I, I've been a reader of, of, of Robert Fisk's work for a long time and I'm still trying to find a president that would uh, excite all his passions in a, in a direction that he would, he would approve of. Uh, if you go back to the, to the Iraq, moment of the Iraq war, we were talking about George Bush as a monkey, as a frat boy, as a cowboy. So, well, I think frightening there manner. was a very strong sense in which... Uh, uh, I never talked about him as a frat boy. Come on. Well, I'm not accusing you of, of oh, doing good, that, but the, the political context in which presidents are received, unfortunately, is met by an almost instinctive anti-Americanism where no president, even Obama, who embodied such hopes can possibly match up to. Now, I, I'm not doing this to try and offer an additional context to Trump, but American presidents have been hated in Paris, in Dublin, and Melbourne for as long as I've been alive. It's just, it's just that we've got now a president that seems to conform to every anti-American prejudice that the, uh, the latte-drinking classes on Ligon Street like to, like to posture on. But but, so I'd like to move away, if we could move away from Trump, in Dublin, they love American presidents, by the way. 35 million Americans are Irish by origin. Well, I want to ask you a, a specific question then, Timothy, because if you're saying that Trump is operating within some historical foreign policy identifiable uh, uh, pattern or, or, or policy, I mean, his foreign policy began with this American first... America first at inauguration, and then it sort of morphed into this um, America's going to save Western civilization. I mean, it, it's been that extreme just in the very short time. So which is it? What is his foreign policy? Well, I think his foreign policy is, is, is pretty consistent. And if you go back over the course of his career, um, he's had, he says, foreigners are not to be trusted. The world is a Hobbesian environment in which you've got to develop, by his, in his analogy, that I don't think he's deeply versed in 18, the politics of the 1830s, you've got to be Jacksonian in response to it. 
uh, and his position on Japan, if you went back 30 years ago, is now his position on China. They are sneaky foreigners that are stealing American jobs, ruining American prosperity. I don't think there's any great genius here, but there is a consistency. It's not in entirely inchoate and inconsistent and sort of off the cuff. He believes some pretty crude versions of the world. The important thing, of course, and we're still talking about Trump, is he's articulating a position which, is, which resonates with those that feel themselves excluded from political power, that, that don't have passports and don't travel, and yet these were the men and women that voted for him who 50 years ago were considered the greatest generation, those that remade the United States. It's explaining that cultural alienation, which I think Trump articulates, from a position of cultural dominance to where they are now, which is a much more important task for, for journalists and analysts, let me suggest. Um, you know, I, th I think you're, you're, you're misreading Trump. Um, I can think of various other leaders um, in the world who have had consistent policies. I'm thinking of Nero, by the way. Um, Nero? Yes, I, because you might think I, I was thinking of Hitler. Um, but, you know, one of the problems I find with the whole Trump thing is that the Second World War, which is so beloved of our political leaders, because we're always comparing Saddam Hussein with Hitler or Bashar al-Assad with Hitler or uh, Anthony Eden compared Nasser with uh, Mussolini. Um, you know, in a strange way, the Second World War brought about an America which respected its colored people. One of the most powerful movies, uh, forget Dunkirk if you've seen it, it's a brilliant film, but I'm not thinking about that. One of the most powerful movies of the Second World War was about the American black squadron leaders who were fighting for the American Air Force and protecting US bombers over Germany in 1944-45. See, we always have a miracle coming along. I, I did ask them to fly over at this moment. Um, but um, one, of, one of the most important social changes that happened as a result of the Second World War was the full engagement of black Americans in combat, particularly in the Battle of the Bulge in 1944-45 and the eventual um, conquest of Nazi Germany. And it's amazing that you find people think that Trump is somehow associated with the people of this generation. The people of that generation, uh, the white Americans, had great respect for American colored soldiers and um, because I did my PhD on um, neutrality in the Second World War, not a very happy subject perhaps, um, I met a lot of Americans who talked to me about the courage of black Americans at that period. And we are somehow um, suggesting that this generation was the white American generation that didn't respect the blacks, that, 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 you know, that, that we're now ignoring. Um, the World War II generation of Americans had great respect for black Americans, which Trump does not have, as we saw and as we heard from his own, I was going to say lips, Twitter, God. I mean, um, what would Winston Churchill have done with Twitter, I wonder? Or what would Tony Blair have done? God spare me, what a terrible thought. Um, I think that Trump is a terrible tragedy for Americans. And I don't think he necessarily represents those who, whose jobs in coal mines, for example, are necessarily going down the tube. I think he represents Americans who believe much sadly, and, and it was the greatest political folly in my lifetime, as British people felt about Europe. Um, it is the most terrible tragedy that my country has decided to leave Europe. And it's very much, I fear, a case of older people, not World War II, but after, and also a lack of education. And I think that, um, you know, I go all over the world, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you do too, but giving lectures, and I can spot when countries go up and down in educational levels. Um, you're going up, but since it's me that's saying it, that may not be such a good thing. Ireland is going up, Britain is going down. The educational level of British audiences is definitely sinking. 
they do not have the same compassion for history that they used to have. And I can spot it because I've been talking to audiences for 30 years. In Australia, you are definitely going up. Your interest is rising in history and culture and language. In the Middle East, it is sadly going down. And that, perhaps we could turn to later, is a very sad uh, and one of the reasons I fear why we have ISIS. Let's, but, let's actually turn to it, yeah. it now, in a way, it's a, a link to what I wanted to ask you next, which is that the, the underlying message of just so much of your work o over the decades seems to me that the West simply doesn't understand the Middle East. We don't understand its culture, its history of violence, um, and, and that, that this is uh, a, a, a root problem. Um. I'm going to reply to this by quoting an American. Um, a young major in the US Marines has allowed me access to his letters home to his father and his family. Uh, I'm quoting, he's actually, his name is Benjamin Bush, not, it's B-U-S-C-H, you'll be pleased to know. And he's a, a brilliant young man. He's now left the Marines, but he, um, has written a book about his life in Iraq as a US Marine. Um, and the extracts from his letters home, which I'm going to quote in my new book, which he's not put in his book, thanks be to God, because they're so good. Um, I wanted to read you a short extract of a letter he wrote to his father, which shows that American soldiers themselves understand what went wrong very early on in Iraq. So this is Major Bush of the US Marines writing home from close to Fallujah, which of course ISIS was soon to capture in Iraq. Very cynically and sarcastically to his dad, he's, he's a civil affairs officer, so his job is to try and get democracy working in Iraq. So, <coughs> so here's his letter to his dad, just a little bit of it. So what news, Dad, about the new government, you may ask? Well, the provisional military governor was replaced by the transitional governor, who resigned under threat and was replaced with another transitional governor. He was then replaced by the emergency appointed governor, who has just been replaced by a selected governor chosen by the elected provincial council. See how democracy is working here. He never made a speech or publicized his views, never debated the other candidates, and was not present during the selection, never making an acceptance speech. He was promptly kidnapped by a rival tribe, while his tribe fought another tribe on the Syrian border. The recently displaced emergency appointed governor returned in the hope of regaining the position. However, the selected governor is in captivity and could not take his job. But there was an election, so democracy is in full bloom, I am to understand. We are now trying to force the power of decision onto the elected provisional council and the city officials. I fight myself to remain insignificant in the democratic process. I haven't the nature for passive observation I share the American fascination with action, and it has consistently betrayed us in our foreign policy. Our continued involvement in Iraq will continue the state of dependency, and our eventual departure will leave nothing but cosmetic structure here. This is a soldier who understands imperial and colonial power, you see. He says, Iraq will return to what it is. It did to ISIS, of course. Our common sense is not common to this people, and that understanding must be given proper respect. I do my best, but I twitch with an urge for the folly of intrusion. This man is worthy of Joseph Conrad. Brilliant work but we don't read it in the New York Times, do we? Timothy, what did you well, make I, of that? Well, it's a very powerful piece. Uh, I suppose the, the question I would raise is how far it fills out this notion uh, 
of the United States as an imperial power. Robert has described him as, a, as an imperialist soldier, or a soldier on behalf of an imperialist state. And what that letter makes very clear to us is the essential incompetence with which this great imperial power chose to uh, use that power by invading Iraq. We're, we're stuck in a, in, a, in a paradox here, it seems to me, which I'd love Robert to try and resolve, that his position when it comes to power generally is that the more you have, the more likely you are to abuse it. So you would expect imperial powers like the United States to be ruthless. They would conquer states, occupy them, turn Iraq into the 51st state, give it the dollar, expropriate the oil. And what you actually see in, in, when you study American history, and particularly the Iraq war, is almost exactly the opposite. We'll go in on the cheapest terms possible, we'll knock off the, uh, we'll decapitate the regime, we won't take the oil, we'll let the bureaucracy in the government buildings be looted, and we'll get the heck out of Dodge. Now, I've never quite been able to square this notion that Robert, I think, is a very good proponent of, I think there are problems with it, that America is this awesome power, but is reticent in the use of it. And my, my final point to illustrate this, the single greatest uh, film franchise in, in the United States, Star Wars. It's a, a series about a war against empire. The United States is born against empire, and yet through this wonderful quirk of history, as, as testament to its remarkable rise, it finds itself not just with a large share of global power, but being the most powerful state in the history of the world. And yet it is a nation fundamentally set up uh, in, in distrust of political power and of imperialism. And those two things, I think, need to be recognised in any assessment of where we're currently at. Um, about two years after the Americans and the British invaded Iraq, I was on the Highway 18 south of... Um, Baghdad. Actually, I was reporting on the murder of an Red, international Red Cross driver and trying to find a Iraqis who had witnessed this um, murder. And while I was interviewing this um, middle-aged couple, the ground began to shake under my feet. And up the road came the biggest convoy of military vehicles escorted by helicopters I had ever seen in my life. Um, truck after truck of soldiers with their rifles pointing outwards like a porcupine. Truck after truck carrying Abrams A1, M1, A1 tanks. Um, helicopters passing over constantly. And I realized at that moment that this was what empire was about. We can go to the land where civilization began, Samara, and so we will go. And we can go to Baghdad, so we will go to Baghdad. And the ground trembled as this convoy passed me. And I, it was the first time I realized that empires must show their power. And that was what this was about, the trembling of the ground. Some weeks later, when the anti-American campaign of resistance, the murder of American soldiers, the blowing up of their vehicles, had become quite commonplace, I went to Kufa to a Spanish military camp. The Spanish had just been attacked in Madrid by Al-Qaeda and were thinking of leaving. And a CIA guy with a giant pistol came up to me and said, what went wrong, Bob? <laughs> and I said, well, maybe you should have remembered the Roman Empire. I wasn't recommending crucifixion, but um, I said, you know, when they, they regarded everyone outside the empire as being terrorists, they called them barbarians. But once they took the country they made the people citizens of Rome. And I said, if you love the Iraqis so much, if you really want to give them democracy, and you love them, and you care for them, give them American passports. I said, they won't all rush to JFK. They won't all come to America. They want to live in Iraq, it's their home. But you would show your love for them 
if you made them Americans. But of course, that was not on the agenda of either Mr. Bush or my own beloved Tony Blair, was it? We did well, love indeed, them. Uh, John Howard probably should be added you to You keep that. your politics to yourself uh, at this well, point. Well, no, no, I mean... You, uh, silence, please. I noticed you left Australia out before and I thought you were... Seemed was like it Tony you... Abbott who said that ISIS was at war with the world? I think it may I have been. I think it might have yeah, been, yeah, actually, yeah. yes, yeah. yes. Oh, God. Anyway, never mind. Sorry, that's your problem, not uh, mine. No, no. <laughs> uh, look, let's uh, shift to Syria. We'll just bring this in and see how we go. Uh, I, I want to start... Uh, uh, ask each of you, I'll start with you, Timothy, of how this conflict is different to others. Well, I suppose the most striking feature of the Syrian war is that there's not an American invasion. Um, And we've reached the position now where, and I'm sure Robert will correct me on some of the numbers, but we're we're now reaching a figure of deaths in the Syrian civil war, in part as a consequence of America's unwillingness to intervene. to to the numbers that died as a consequence of American intervention in in, in the Iraq war. So the the, the most obvious thing that I would suggest is that the caricature of America, the imperialist power, is belied by what's actually happening in Syria and that the very many women, men, women and children that have died there have died not because America is imperial but because it lacks an, an imperial mission. Discuss. Well, go on, discuss it. Well, I mean... Well, I, I, again, if, if you want the cure-all to be American withdrawal... I, mean, I see a lot of American airplanes flying over it, me it, in it, Syria. If you, if you want... Uh, uh, again, we, uh, foreign policy is, is an echo of the previous intervention or, or non-intervention. Rwanda uh, hangs over American foreign policy and has done for the last, last two decades. Uh, and it's, the problem of Rwanda is the problem of... The West, which means the US, lacking the will to intervene. But it's perfectly capable of... Uh, and so we, we see Kosovo, the great forgotten war, because 9-11 comes along. We, we, we forget that uh, after Kosovo, there was a sense in which the West could actually make things better. When the left, the left, remember the left, had this notion that you can actually use hard military power to get rid of bad governments like Milosevic. And you had the extraordinary situation... suggesting that Tony Blair was of the left, Mr Lynch. Well, uh, (laughs) certainly would self-identify... Ten Australian dollars for anyone who can explain Tony Blair to us. Left in a very traditional sense that he believed the use of power and the use of hard military power could be used to effect humanitarian purposes. No, and in, Tony and Blair Kosovo, believed that... Hey, let Tony... me finish my point, and then you, then you can... I'll yes, defer, and I'll defer for minutes. Um, in Kosovo, you have that extraordinary situation, ladies and gentlemen, where the American military, under the guise of NATO, is bombing Christian Serbia in defence of an ethnic Muslim population in Kosovo. The consequence of this is not simply the removal of Slobodan Milosevic and his eventual trial and death in The Hague some, some time later, but is the creation of a, an Islamist state, a Muslim state, in, in the centre of uh, South East Europe. Now, that's an extraordinary capacity uh, on behalf of, I think, Western military power that Iraq really problematised and that Syrians have paid the, cons- paid the price for. I am ast- I, I, I'm astonished, having uh, had the dubious privilege of witnessing these wars at first hand, to hear your version of what happened. Tony Blair used war as a logical extension of politics. He followed the politics of Gladstone in Egypt. He decided that he had a higher knowledge of what the world wanted and what human beings wanted. Kosovo is not an Islamic state, it's a mafia state. And that is what we created as a result of it. All right, let's stop arguing about Kosovo and talking about Tony Blair. Let's keep on the Muslim bit for a moment, because that's the important part. Tony Blair didn't care whether it created a Muslim state in Kosovo. Kosovo was always a Muslim province of Serbian Christian Yugoslavia, which was 
a groveling, ghastly, communist, anarchic state and crooked and secret police run. But what we have in the Middle East at the moment, which is what we're trying to be talking about, is a situation where we constantly, we the West, constantly intervene on the grounds that we are the forces of good, that we're going to bring democracy, freedom, goodness to these people, and we do not bring it, and we use Kosovo shamelessly to say, oh, well, look, we were on the side of the Muslims once, and we were more or less on their side in Bosnia, though we didn't do very much. And the fact of the matter is that every Western intervention from Suez onwards in the Middle East has been a tragedy for the people who live there. I worked out in the days when my lovely newspaper had a magazine some years ago that we now had, at that stage, per head of population, more military personnel in the Middle East than the Crusaders had in the 12th century. Why? What are we doing there? For God's sakes, give these people not weapons, not, not wars of liberation, not democracy. Give them by all means our teachers, our architects, our scholars, if they want them. But get our soldiers out. Get our tanks out. Get our guns out. Get our helicopters out. They have no reason there. They are not our people. It is not our land. It does not belong to us. No, no. The... If, if I may, the, the first and greatest sin the United States committed in, in Iraq was to deploy too few troops, and it's a price it's paid in the years since. So even a minimum, minimal order couldn't be sustained, on which you grab, you create the stability, which makes any new form of government, let alone liberal democracy, possible. It's not the, it's not the uh, application of American troops into the region, it's their, their, the timidity of their use. It's not using enough for long enough. Well, I mean, you're going to have to explain what happens in Baghdad through, through March, April, May, June of 2003. And I put to you, it's not American imperialism that's the problem. It's American fear, American anti-imperialism. The notion that you can trust to the latent democratic sentiments of a, of a people, throw a copy of the Federalist Papers at them, and everything will be fine. These aren't perfect analogies, but... One of the reasons Germany now runs Europe and Japan is a center of creativity and prosperity is because America stuck around after it engaged in bloody destruction of them. But we haven't learned that lesson. We haven't understood that you can actually create the situation where democracy is possible. Robert, Instead, what, we are what the, the West. Excuse me a second. Excuse me a second. We have, to, we have to raise this, this word democracy. Any of you here who have lived in Egypt, or who are Egyptian perhaps, or Syrian, or Jordanian, you will know that democracy for an Arab Muslim means the countries which support with money and weapons their dictators. Our democracies supported Mubarak, supported Sadat, and still goes on supporting Sisi in Egypt. Our democracies support the King of Jordan. Our democracies support the King of Saudi Arabia, whose terrorist funding is so secret that Theresa May, my beloved Prime Minister, has just refused to publish a document because it has too many Saudi names in it in terrorist funding. The people of the Middle East who came to Tahrir Square in Egypt, they did not carry posters calling for democratia, democracy. They asked for dignity and freedom, which is not the same. Democracy, whether you use it in English or in the Arabic translation, is what the people of the Middle East associate with the powers that have maintained financially and militarily their dictators to oppress them. So please don't talk about democracy. Do you, do you I, um, I want to ask you, Robert, that what uh, the Middle East would look like if 
America and its allies, all, every one of them packed up and went home. Okay, I'm going to um, make a party political broadcast on behalf of a very fine and brave academic called Taref al-Haladi, who is the most recent translator of the Quran. And Taref gave a lecture about two years ago in Beirut of enormous courage and miserably and typical of the Middle East, only about 38 people came. My wife and I were there. That's 36 without us. And his lecture was entitled, Does Islam Need a Martin Luther? And his lecture was basically saying that those universities, alas, many of them, from Pakistan, Afghanistan, across the whole Middle East region, which tell their students the Quran contains everything you need to know are wrong. The Quran, he says, is an invitation to knowledge. It does not contain all knowledge. As he always puts it, Brahms and Beethoven are not in the Quran, nor are they in the Bible, by the way. It is an invitation to knowledge and learning. But by telling people that this one book contains all knowledge is a tragedy in the Middle East. And I think he's right. Um, I think that um, the interpretation of scholarly analysis of holy books is an intensely, immensely important task for the teachers of the future. I hate to sound like Tony Blair, but education, education, education. It wasn't all bad. Um, yes, I mean, I, I, I'd share Dr. Fisk exactly that analysis. I, I would go further, it, the Umar doesn't just need a Martin Luther, it needs a Martin Luther King. It needs a genuine, organic no, philosophy, no, he of, wouldn't be philosophy of freedom sufficient that you could actually hope to establish something other than, than Arab autocracy. But these are, these are aspirational more than I think they are realistic. Types. No, they're not, because you see, in the United Arab Emirates now, not a state I'm very happy with, but in particularly Abu Dhabi, they are pouring millions of dollars into new universities and art galleries, Western art too. Um, there's no doubt and you can imagine how much this hurts my heart to say it, that the American University of Cairo and the American Uni University of Beirut are centers of great scholarship in the Middle East. Tarif al-Haladi was, uh, in fact, a professor of Islamic studies at the American University. One of the things I'm, I'm actually writing in my new book, which I'm writing at the moment, the chapter on religion. And what's particularly interesting is how well Christians speak about Islam and how well they've understood it. And it was Kamal Salibi, alas, dead some four years now, uh, a Protestant um, professor of English at the American University of Beirut who said to me, you know, part of the reason your father, he was talking about my dad, fought in the First World War was to destroy the Ottoman Empire. And he said, the Ottomans, you know, in their last days, the sultans... They, they wanted to play the piano. They, they loved Wagner. They were interested in painting. They brought the Rack and Pinion Railways to Beirut. Uh, under the Ottoman Empire, Egypt had the Suez Canal, the greatest um, construction engineering um, feat of its time. And he said, and they wanted, the Ottomans wanted to be like you, so you destroyed them. And I wonder how much the late Kamal Saliba's words apply to us today when we talk about the Middle East. I'm just giving you an option. I agree. I'm, I'm not sure you've sort of addressed the question, though, Robert, about what happens if America and all the allies leave. And I'm assuming you're not saying everybody's going to be visiting I've, art galleries. I've popped and... out of America, honestly. I mean, really. You, you know, look, with Trump, you cannot address America. 
there's a problem. Well, I think you can. I think you're over, overdoing oh, that. Um, yeah, well, I, I didn't answer the question either. What happens if America withdraws, not just from the Middle East, from the world generally? I think, well, that would be a net negative, let me suggest. It be a bad thing. I, I don't think you have to be a lover of everything American to recognize it's been an extraordinary engine for something other than uh, tyranny. Some all, so it, it, it's the best we've got, a highly imperfect system for the propagation of sort of versions of itself. And I would still rather live in a system which was either uh, a product of the application of American power or of American ec economic subvention or security. I would rather live in South Korea than North Korea, rather have grown up in West Germany than East Germany, rather have lived in North America than South America, and on and on it goes. So the, the, this is not a council of perfection. States, empires with power will tend to overuse it, underuse it, it will lack calibration, it will kill. Uh, the best hope we've got is the character of America itself, the fact that it, it is a liberal democracy. It's not a coincidence that the great rise of democracy as a force in the world it, it, it is, a pro, is at maps against the rise of American globalism from the end of the Second World War. That's not accidental. When the character of the most dominant state changes, when it becomes a China, or an India, or some variation or combination of these, so will the character of global politics. And I think that, is that, that, would, be a, that would be a problem. You are missing something about America. I lecture a lot in the United States, and I'm going to Boston in November on the anniversary of the Balfour Declaration. It should be fun. Um, I think America is an enormous power for good in the world. And it could be a wonderful power for good. From sea to shining sea, we have American universities endowed with the most extraordinary funding of Middle East studies, Islamic studies, Hebrew studies, Jewish studies, Islamic studies. And yet somehow, and I blame my own colleagues partly for this, <clears throat> This knowledge doesn't get to power. America, in its attempts to control events, which is what empires are about, fails consistently because it does not use the intelligence of its people. Now, whether you regard this as part of the internet world, which I rather suspect has something to do with it, whether you regard this as part of the Google world we live in, or whether you think that perhaps politics has at last taken leave of intelligent converse, not conversations, but converse. How can we have a prime minister in England who says Brexit means Brexit? or enough is enough. Is this the language we now speak in? Or is this supposed to be the language of journalism? If you listen now to the CNN or Fox News, I'm not recommending it, talking about what the Pentagon thinks, if it thinks anything under this president, it's like listening to a machine. We no longer accept and understand that the intelligence of our people must rule our countries. Mm. And that is what's gone wrong with America. And that's what's going wrong with Britain. And that's why we are committing the folly of leaving the European Union. It is insanity. But we are, we are not any longer reflecting seriously on great matters of policy and life. And I think that that has afflicted America. Um, and I think it's to all our detriment that this has happened. Um, I have never, I mean, I've been 41 years in the Middle East, and sure, I'm a journalist. If I didn't like doing my job, I wouldn't stay there. But I have never seen it in such tragic circumstances as I have today. Less than one month ago, I was eating with Hezbollah and Syrian soldiers a lunch 20 meters from the dead bodies of ISIS and Nusra fighters who were rotting in the sun. 
what was I doing, I asked myself. You know, um, what terrible tragedies are happening there? Um, and I don't think we, we think enough about our failure intellectually to read history, to read books as opposed to looking at screens, to force governments to account in eloquence and language that is befitting of us, that we want to hear them speak in the language of great people. I wrote an article a short while ago asking what happened to the Titans, you know, the Churchills or the Roosevelts. I left out Stalin, needless to say, um, the, the, you know, the, the, um, the Titos. And I don't know. Can you think of any modern Australian politician at the moment who speaks in the language of angels? Well, it, it has ever been thus, ladies and gentlemen. The, the Gladstone, idea, the idea, Palmerston. Well, I think in some Excuse ways these stand out because they are exceptional. A hundred years ago, we were at war, a war created by some of the best educated public school boys that the West could create. We did that. So best. this idea, because you're, you're a technophobe and, and resist the, uh, the, the, the internet, <laughs> for many reasons I applaud you for that, for that position. We have this notion we are more stupid than we used to be, and the transition belt between some intellectual elite, some platonic you know, guardian class, it no longer applies, I think is faulty. The, one of the best-selling books, the, Guardian. The, best, the best-selling books about the Vietnam War is called The Best and the Brightest by David Halberstam, a very great journalist. And it, the, the title itself captures the central thesis. If you put brilliant Harvard-educated men, and they largely were men, into positions of political power. Do not expect the cause of liberty and progress to, to uh, proceed unimpeded. So there is an, I think there is a note, what we, so th this is, this is the, I think the issue here. Democracy is an extremely difficult thing, extremely difficult. We try and think of it as if it's scientific in its construction and execution, and it's not. It's a decision by, made by imperfect men and women trying at some level to reflect the will of the people that elected them. Now, I would still take the imperfections and problems of a system founded that way than I would an alternative. And I, I know, I, I share more of, with, with, with Dr. Fisk's, Fisk's worldview, perhaps he, he realizes you may be hearing, but I, I, would, I would like to see an actual prescription for how the world could be made better, which is not simply about America withdrawing from it. I think you have a future in politics. <laughs> uh, we're going to take questions very shortly. And uh, while the ushers get ready with the microphones, uh, I do want to ask you, uh, Robert, you just touched on it, but I'd like to hear a little bit more about um, what it's actually like over there on the ground. Uh, you wrote, uh, you may have been referring to this same uh, piece in late July on the Kara Mountain, was it? 7,000 feet above the no, Syrian That was Lebanon. where the bodies were. Is that where the were, soldier yeah. was? Because there was a piece you wrote about that uh, that was very moving. And, uh, and one of the things that you described was a video that you watched uh, where a Hezbollah guerrilla, a, a Shia fighter... I met the Hezbollah man who said that, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And he tells a, a vanquished, dying Sunni, God be with you, as he's dying. Uh, he gave him his blessing, yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, which is a fairly remarkable scene to uh, imagine. I thought it was, scene. too. Yeah. It was quite unusual, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, and not typical, by the way. Don't, okay, don't think. Okay, right. Uh, I wanted to check that. <laughs> I assume it's not typical, but yeah. the point of bringing that up is that when you're in a war or you're witnessing and documenting war and you're actually there... You mean me. ..you, for decades... Um, you see things every day that are not typical uh, and, and, and that are. What is it like, um, and uh, if you can even answer this question after having done it for so long, to actually be on the ground in constant conflict? Is it like World War I where soldiers spent most of their days waiting for combat? Yeah, my dad was in World War I. 
and he lost his military career because he refused to execute an Australian soldier. Um, that was the end of my dad's military experience at the end of World War I. Um, How's it changed combat? I need to think about this for a All few right, seconds. why don't we take an audience question? Yeah, I'll come back and to come it. Back I need to, to think about All the right. answer to that. Uh, we'll start. Uh, anyone, put your hand up, and uh, there's a gentleman here. Thanks. I'd be interested in the comments about the current issue with Qatar in the Middle East and how that plays out in relation to American situation and involvement in the, U in the Middle East and conflict between countries in the Middle East. Qatar, by the way, not Qatar. Um, yeah. Um, look, Qatar wants an empire, and it thought it could get an empire by having Al Jazeera which was quite a good idea, but it's not enough. And I think that what Qatar wants to do is I think it wants to rebuild Syria and put its money into Syria and make Bashar al-Assad a friend of Qatar so that it will have land territory to control. And that will really infuriate the Saudis and the Americans, but not the Russians. I'm going to leave you with that thought. But <laughs> Bashar al-Assad never criticizes Qatar. And when um, some Christian nuns were released from Nusra, Islamist captivity, they thanked Qatar and Bashar al-Assad for their release because they paid a million dollars a nun, very expensive nuns. I just wanted to say I think um, any discussion on um, American power in the Middle East is necessarily incomplete unless you talk about Israel and Palestine. And I was going to ask... You haven't mentioned the name Israel no. at all, have we? No. Indeed. You. Well, I, I think it's remarkable we've gone this long without, without mentioning uh, Israel and, and... Well, I did mention at the beginning Trump was going to sort it out, right? Yeah, well, it, 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 we could trust to that, I suppose. Um, yes, I, I think it, in some ways, and I'm interested in Robert's perspective on this, that Israel is something of a, of a red herring in the Middle East. That at the mo it's existed for the last, uh, since 48, as a means to uh, legitimize the Arab regimes that have sought its destruction. It's actual... It's existed to legitimize Israel. Well, yes, I mean, in terms of it, it's a nation state founded on the protection of its, of, of, of its own citizens, as many nation states are. Founded on but the I, United I, I, Nations. I, I, don't, I, okay, I, I don't think you can explain 9-11 and Iraq and Syria with reference to Israel, or it soon breaks down. Osama bin Laden, I don't think, was that bothered about Israel. What he hated was the fact that Saudi Arabia was being guarded by the land of the prophet was being guarded by American troops, and this fueled his anger and caused the, uh, the rise of al-Qaeda. So in some ways, it, probably, it might be a good thing if Israel starts to become less consequential in deciding how Arab autocracy reforms itself. No, Israel will not. Um, Israel, and, and if you read the works of Uri Avnari, for example, who's a great um, uh, Israeli philosophical writer and speaker. If you read the works of uh, Amira Haas in Haaretz, you will see that the tragedy of Israel is that it is pressing on with more and more and more colonies for Jews and Jews only in the West Bank. And it is not going to be able to maintain a state as an apartheid state. But it cannot maintain a democracy unless it gives a vote to the Arabs who live under its occupation. And so Israel is facing a great trauma in its history at the moment. And if you read very fine Israeli historians like Avi Shleim, for example, The Iron Wall, I recommend to you, and read Amira Haas every day in Haaretz, Haaretz newspaper, and, and read Uri Avnari, who writes every uh, Friday a brilliant essay uh, he, he, he was a, a Jewish refugee from Nazi Germany. He got away in time along with his parents. These are people 
whom we should read to understand what Israel is facing today, which effectively is going to be the end of the Israeli state if they carry on wanting more and more land and gobbling it up and taking it from other people, namely the Arabs. What was the question I wanted to have a postponement on? Can About you remind me? About the nature of combat changing and oh, waiting. Oh, combat changing, yeah. Um, because my father was in the First World War, I read a lot about the trenches of France, as well, of course, about the Ottoman Empire. Do you realize that we were the first people to use gas in the Middle East? General Allenby used gas shells on the Turkish army in Gaza. Interesting, isn't it? Um, I don't know if the nature of war actually changes in the way that you might think. Um, at the end of the day, I am still much struck by the kindness of people in war and how some people have tried to protect me and my wife in Syria and how people who cannot escape their country still maintain the... Um, the idea that marriage is sacrosanct, that their children are sacred, that their home must be protected. Um, things that we would take as natural in Australia or Britain or Ireland, uh, but which you might think disappeared in the Middle East, but they don't. Um, I'm also struck by the fact that in the Muslim world, people have kept their faith which I don't think that we in the West have really done. And that raises a number of questions, not the least of which is, how come that we who have lost our faith are able to oppress militarily, culturally, economically, a people who do not appear to have lost their faith? I'm talking about Muslims, of course. Hi, thank you. Um, I'm a little disappointed he didn't speak much about Syria. Uh, that is where my, part of my family's from. Uh, but what I noticed is the framing of this whole discussion has been one of America's actions, the West's actions in the Middle East has been one of reacting to Arab violence and, and Muslim savagery. Um, and what I want to ask is how can we have an honest discussion about American and Western power in the Middle East if we can't even uh, mention or say or, or frame it as uh, Arab actions and Muslims' actions themselves being a reaction uh, and res response to US and UK colonialism. You know, the Iranian revolution was a, a response to the CIA overthrowing. And so from the Taliban to Saudi Arabia, these has happened. Okay. Muslim fundamentalism. No, I, I, yeah. well, I, I think we just disagree in our, our different versions of history. Um, in some ways, I think there, it's the height of condescension to suggest that movements that come from the Arab world are, are, have to be a reaction to some sort of Western imperialism. It, it strikes me that Al-Qaeda is one example of the extreme that, that, that uh, Arab theology, Muslim theology can deliver is actually grounded in a quite organic sense that we hate the United States irrespective of what it does to us. We hate it for its pornography, for its abortion rights, for its feminism, for its prosperity, for its religious freedom. Uh, it doesn't really matter whether America stays at home or goes abroad. That hatred and loathing is, 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 is fueled by, I think, a very authentic, you know, faulty and perverse, but quite authentic and organic notion of, of, of a certain version of Islamic thinking, Islamist thinking. Um, I disagree with you for a very simple reason that um, I think the problem in the Muslim world is the existence of injustice. Whether you apply this to the Palestinians, to the Kurds, to the Shiites in southern Lebanon, whether you even apply it to the Israelis who, according to the Balfour Declaration, would have a homeland in all of Palestine, not just part of it. It is the existence of injustice and the failure of the United States as the major power in the world 
to lead the fight for justice for people. That is the problem. And as long as America will support injustice by going along with the autocrats and the head choppers and the dictators of the Middle East, it will be shunned and hated and you will have ISIS. Good afternoon. My name is Usaid, and I'm a Palestinian student from Melbourne University. And when the lady there asked about what we Palestinians refer to as the terrorist Zionist entity, so-called Israel, she started to talk, she asked something related to about its factor or the role that Israel plays in the Middle East. My question is, is that do you think that military resistance would be an effective tool to stand against the oppression coming from the terrorist Zionist entity against the Palestinians, or do you think it's not effective enough? For example, in 2014, the Israelis, as they started to promise their citizens since 1948 that they'll provide them with safety, they failed. They couldn't stop the missiles, they couldn't stop the tunnels. All right, let's... So what do you think? Pick up your microphone. Sorry, I, I, I have a hearing problem. So you're basically saying, is military um, uh, action um, uh, right against Israeli occupation of Palestinian land, is that right? Yes, I'm asking, do you think it is an effective tool and Palestinians should hold I fast see, to uh, it? You, God, I wish you wouldn't use words like tool. It's sort of academics use this phrase, like they use space, don't they? Um, look, we all know and we've all written about the rights of people to refuse occupation. We know the story. I've been to the West Bank. I've been to Gaza. I've written about it many, 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 many times. Um, there are different ways of opposing occupation. Um, if you look at different wars, the French occupation of Russia under Napoleon, let's go back a little bit, you can find very good reasons for opposing occupation with violence. My father, um, in 1940, was asked to lead the resistance movement in his town of Maidstone in Kent when the Nazis invaded. And I have his plans for blowing up railway trains on Maidstone East Railway Station Bridge. He would have been accused of being a terrorist and he would have been captured and shot, only the Germans didn't come. Would he have been right? The French derailed trains and killed many innocent people. Were they right? Over and over again, you can find people living under occupation and you could take, for example, the Iraqis who opposed the American occupation in Iraq. Was I, when I wrote about the killing of American soldiers, to say it was murder? I didn't call it murder. I said it was a resistance war. But what was I supposed to think when a young medical student ran over to me at a hospital when I was touring the mortuaries to count the dead because the Americans wouldn't give us the figures and said, Mr. Robert, Mr. Robert, they've just brought in a man's body and his head is missing and they've sewn a dog's head onto the body. And then she said to me, it wasn't very well sewn on. I'm just giving you this as from the war front, so to speak. Only you can decide the degree of violence which is justifiable. I can't do it for you. You have to make up your mind. If you mean that the murder of a young woman is justified, I say no to you. And that, I think, is what you're asking me about. If you're saying that the innocent should die in a war of resistance, I say no. But alas, they always do, don't they?
Robert Fisk, Timothy Lynch and Sally Warhaft in conversation at the 2017 Melbourne Writers' Festival. Next up, Sally chats to politics professor and writer Judith Brett about Australia's second Prime Minister, Alfred Deakin, and what we can learn from him about minority governments in Australia. Subscribe to this podcast and find more episodes at wheelercentre.com. And until next time, take care.